It was once written, tell me what you love and I'll tell you who you are. In his newest book, St. John Paul the Great, His Five Loves, Jason Everett takes those words to heart, exploring the great loves of St. John Paul II's life in order to better understand the man himself. Join us today as we talk about those five loves with our guest, Jason Everett, author, speaker, and co-founder of The Chastity Project. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University. Uh, we'll be talking today about St. John Paul the Great uh, with uh, author and speaker uh, Jason Everett. I'm joined here in our studios with uh, a special uh, panelist here today, uh, Scott Solemn, Professor of Theology and Catechetics here at Franciscan University as well as a, a regular panelist here, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And we're so happy to welcome Jason Everett. Uh, Jason, you're an alum of the university. Mm -hmm. we, we overlapped a little yeah. bit while you were here, uh, but you're the founder of the Chastity Project, mm -hmm. um, and you have spoken on the, on the virtue of chastity to uh, countless millions uh, of students' uh, videos and, and so many other uh, materials that you've put out there. Uh, you have a master's degree in theology from Franciscan, mm -hmm. as well as an undergraduate in theology and counseling yes. uh, here at the university. Mm -hmm. uh, you and your wife, uh, Kristalina, have uh, uh, five children, live in Denver. Number six on the way. Number six on the yeah. way, outstanding, yeah. outstanding. And you're author of over 10 books. Mm -hmm. um, you, you have uh, How to Find uh, Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, mm -hmm. which my daughter loves, <laughs> and, uh, and so many others. But the, today we're talking about St. John Paul the Great, mm -hmm. his five loves. So yeah. welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be back to the campus. Yeah, yeah, it's so good to have you. Well, I, before we get into a little bit more on, on St. John Paul the Great, which is a, a favorite mm -hmm. to us here at Franciscan University, yeah. and I know to EWTN watchers. Um, what inspired you to, to write this book on yeah. St. John Paul II? Well, I was blessed growing up. I got to see him 24 different times, you know, as a young man growing up, and I always had a, a deep, deep love for him, and when I came here to campus, I discovered love and responsibility, and just the wealth of his wisdom, and then as I traveled in my ministry, I've been to six continents all over, and I would meet these bishops and priests who knew him very intimately. Some grew up with him, someone, you know, somewhere under the, in the seminary underneath him, and they would share these remarkable stories with me that mm. I had I'd never heard of before, and I just kept collecting them over the years. Mm. And as the years drew on, it just turned into a book, and I just thought, I I've got to give this to the church. I mean, these things have never been told before, so uh, I, I just wanted to share it with the church so that they would love him as much as I do. Now, now back up a second. You said when you came to the campus, you discovered love and responsibility. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book. Right. I wanted to clarify that because I think you also discovered love and responsibility here in yes. other senses. Yes. But that book of his, Love and Responsibility, is something of a classic. Okay. I mean, we have courses taught here. Right. In fact, we have courses taught at the local high school on that mm -hmm. subject. And yeah. it really is a magnet because it's exactly what people are looking for, yeah. longing for. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. It's That's so great. beautiful about how he speaks. And he doesn't argue from the outside in. And here's the doctrines. Yeah, I got to follow him. He argues from the inside out. 
and it's so hard to refute when he's speaking of the very desires of the human heart. And so that book has been the, the core of a whole, our whole ministry. I mean, mm. we go into public high schools where you can't mention God, and we teach them love and responsibility without mentioning where it came from, uh, and, and they awesome. just gravitate towards it. Oh, that's great. So there's a great inspiration from John Paul, just Absolutely. even in what you're doing, obviously, mm. right now. Yeah. So let, let's, let's um, kind of set the stage a little yeah. bit. Looking back at John Paul II's life growing up, mm -hmm. um, how did his family, his parents, uh, create a culture in their home yeah. uh, that really called forth the vocation he had to the priesthood? What, what did they, they do in the home? It, well, he said his, his father actually never spoke to him about a vocation to the priesthood, but he said, my home in many ways was my first seminary because, mm. you know, as many people know, his sister died before he was born and then his mother died, then his brother died. It was just him and his dad. And you know, it was just the two of them from the time he was 11 years old. And he said, sometimes he would wake up at night and he would see his dad kneeling in the dark, lost in prayer. Yeah. And he said, the violence of the blows that struck his dad opened up immense spiritual depths in him. And his wow. grief found an outlet in prayer. And I think the same became true of John Paul II, the violence of blows that struck him through the Nazi Holocaust and communism and the loss of his whole family opened up these immense spiritual depths in him, and he found his outlet in prayer as well. So he learned it by example, because it's one thing to teach, but I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I remember as a student, you know, I studied under you for hundreds of hours, but the one thing I remember most is coming back from a date with a girlfriend late on a Saturday night, and we ducked into the St. Peter's Chapel in the Adoration Chapel, it must have been one o'clock in the morning, just to say goodnight to Jesus, and there's my teacher sitting with the Bible on his lap, you before the Blessed Sacrament. And I remember of all the memories I have of my professors on campus, that's the one that stuck. Not what you said, but what I saw that you did. Mm -hmm. To see my teacher before his teacher. Yeah. Well, when you teach, you really recognize the fact that, you know, you're in over your head. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned a few minutes ago that he, he, he works from the inside out. Mm -hmm. He meets people where they are. You know, that's the way our Lord met him too. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at his family and the circumstances surrounding his sister's death and his mother's death, and eventually his father's death as well, you can see how his father, without saying a word about a priestly vocation, in a certain sense, carved that space right out in that man's soul mm -hmm. for him to discover it. You know, it's, it's great to have the answers and to teach them or to learn them. It's another thing to recognize the fact that, you know, we are here in the middle of the world and we've yeah. got to find our way. It, you know, it's great to have a compass, yeah. but you have to learn to use it, you know. And in a certain sense, the faith gives us our bearings in order to kind of find our way out. And in the process, I think you also point out in this book wonderfully how he meets people right where they are, but he knows exactly how to take them to where mm -hmm. God wants yeah. them to be. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's a powerful way to begin, too, just thinking about just for parents, uh, you know, yeah. seeing the image uh, that it was a witness yeah. so much more for him. But, but John Paul went through so much in his life, his, particularly his early life, yeah. that really shaped him. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at World War II, that he yeah. experienced so much there. How, how did that kind of um, experience of yeah. war have an influence on John Paul II. I mean, if you think that World War II struck when he was 19 years old. He had just spent a, one year as a college student before the thing hit. And from the youngest ages, he had to wrestle with the heaviest questions of human existence, mm. of the problem of human suffering, of evil, of mercy, and of forgiveness. And he learned by experience that forgiveness shows the presence of, a, of love in the world, which is greater than any sin. Yeah. And so he mm. learned by example and, and, you know, forced into manual labor. And he said the four years of labor he spent in the quarry and the factory was worth more than both of his doctoral degrees to him. Wow. Wow. And, and you think so he was, he was carved and fashioned both yeah. at home, but through mm. suffering and yeah. through 
really evil through the war mm -hmm. and all the suffering that he went through and yeah. he witnessed. I mean, those are powerful teachers mm -hmm. uh, and, and formed him. I'm reminded of the phrase, the, the child is the father of the man, that what we go through as children really has a long lasting deep impact on who we are. And Pope John Paul II would say many years later, and uh, Salvifici Dolores, on the meaning of Christian suffering, that what suffering does is it opens us up to the other, that we, we have to stop, mm -hmm. we have to sympathize, we have to have compassion. And certainly throughout your book, this sub-theme of his insatiable passion for other people and for prayer just kept coming through again and again and again. And certainly that was forged in part through his childhood and the suffering that he went through. Yeah, yeah. Now let's face it though, we're also looking at a man of singular genius. I mean, he yeah. really was a prodigy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and not just as an intellectual, but as a playwright, as a philosopher, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a person who just could meet people yeah. and just love them. You know, yeah. I remember the first time I met him, you mentioned this in the book, that it was a universal experience for the millions of people who met him. You felt like you were the only person oh, in yeah. the room. You know? yeah. It was a crowded room, but yeah. for about two minutes there, yeah. I was sharing my heart with a man in a way that was like, you know, in a confessional or something. Mm -hmm. It was my father had just died a month before, and he was locked into my heart. Yeah. He was just listening oh. and, uh, and then speaking to me. Yeah, I think his life was an example of something he said in a prayer that in the end, everything else will be unimportant and inessential except for father, child, and love. Yeah. Wow. That's what heaven is, father, child, and love. And he exemplified it through his own fatherhood. Wow, wow, and, and, and what else may have influenced him in kind of his early days or his priesthood uh, that really helped form him, you know, kind of into the man that we know him as uh, Pope? Well, I think two things. One, his love for the Blessed Sacrament. When he was a young priest, his parishioners would spy on him sometimes at night, and they would see him laying on his face before the Blessed Sacrament, praying all night long, uh, all night on the cold floor of a Polish church with no heat praying throughout the night. And so that was one devotion he had from earliest days with the Blessed Sacrament. But then I think secondly, the time he spent with young people, camping and kayaking, he said, mm. I, I have only two responsibilities, the young people, canoeing and skiing. <laughs> and, and, and I remember a bishop from Poland telling me, he said, he said I was on one of those retreats where John Paul came when he was a, a bishop and cardinal. And he said he would hang out with us until after midnight, singing our songs, sitting at the campfire, just laughing with us, laughing at our skits and jokes. And then this young teenager became a priest and became a bishop and then went to visit him in the Vatican. And he said, Holy Father, you know, you were at my high school retreat, you know, in this year. And John Paul says, oh, how is Paulina Kavitskovic? And how, and he went through the <laughs> list of the names of the teenagers on the retreat. And it had been decades since that retreat. And he wow. remembered by them by name and asked, how are they doing now in Poland? That's amazing. It was the heart he had and it was the intellect he yeah. had. And together, it's a perfect storm. Yeah, indeed. And, and when you talk about the intellect, you, you know, this is something everybody uh, mentions. I mean, just talk to us a little bit about his, his intellectual prowess, if you will. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> he had, it was confirmed, he had the gift of split concentration where he could do two things simultaneously, meaning he could write a speech while someone was teaching him a foreign language that during the conclave... I have hard enough time doing one yes, thing at a time. See, I could do two at a time, but I do both of them half as effectively as I would. But, but he could do two things simultaneously. I mean, he had an extraordinary intellect. Our bishop at the time in San Diego said that when he was the bishop in, in Duluth and he saw the Holy Father, He's, John Paul said, I think we've met before. And Bishop Brom said, no, this is our first meeting. And John Paul said, no, I believe we have. And Bishop Brom was equally sure they had not. And after the meeting, and Cardinal Jeevish, the Pope's secretary, came to Bishop Brahm and said, don't argue with the Pope. He said, he met you in 1963 when you were a seminarian walking out of the Church of the Jesu in Rome. Do you remember that? 
And he thought back, you know, I did go to the seminary in the 60s, I was in Rome, I did meet a bishop from Poland, Karol Wojtyla, and he said, how can he do that? In the middle of Vatican II. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 Nothing else on his mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, how can he do that? And he uh, said, because every person he encounters, he's encountering God. And then the last meeting they had, John Paul said, how many times have I seen you now? And when was the first time? And Bishop Brown remembered that. them all, uh, and he yeah. said, in 1963, and John Paul just smacked the desk with a big smile, and said, finally <laughs> you remember. And, and this is when the media said well, he's too senile to run the church. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. You know, perhaps we're too close to this sort of historical circumstance to recognize how peculiar, how mm -hmm. prodigious this man was, you yeah. know, because it was the Pope I grew up with. It's the Pope that I came yeah. to know when yeah. I came into the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so it's sort of like, you know, it sets the bar very yeah, that's high. That's what popes do. They yeah. Pope, yeah. You know? right. yeah, and and just all the ways that he traveled, he wrote, he spoke. I mean, it was it was an amazing, amazing life that he had. He did so much, and for for me, it was the pope that I knew growing up. Yeah. And so, but for many today, they've now experienced John Paul II, mm -hmm. Pope Emeritus Benedict, and mm -hmm. now Pope Francis. And I mean, my kids have three popes, where I really had just one, yeah. and that was that was the standard. It was a pretty high standard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it is amazing to see all that he. He did. Um, we just, uh, you know, not too long ago, uh, had his canonization. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know if any of us can share experiences or thoughts, yeah. but I think you were there. Yeah, it was. It was great. We spent the night in the streets of Rome with 800,000 of my closest friends, you know, <laughs> you know, like sardines, closest. you know, until they, until they let us in. And um, you know, the mass was beautiful. My favorite part was Pope Francis called him the Pope of the family because he took that from a quote that John Paul said in a private conversation at table at Castle Gandolfo years earlier. He said, I don't know if history will remember this pope. Uh, I doubt it will, but if it does, uh, he says, I hope it remembers him as the pope of the family. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, that was my favorite moment in the canonization, but the best gift of the trip was the day after. My wife and I wanted to just catch a morning mass at St. Peter's. Usually you can duck in at 7 a.m. and all the priests come out of the sacristy and go to different altars. We get to the door and everything's shut, and they said there's nobody allowed inside because they're going to have a big mass out front with a cardinal later on. And a priest recognized, and I said, why don't you come with me? And he brought us to the Swiss guards, and he said, they're with me. And he brought us in to the side entrance, and he said, we're going to have a very small private mass with John Paul's secretary at his tomb for the first mass since his canonization. And they let us sit in the front row, wow. and then after the mass, the priest bowed before the sanctuary, plucked a rose out of John Paul's bouquet at his tomb, and he was walking out, he kind of just handed it to me under his arm and then brings us to the sacristy to meet John Paul's secretary. He blessed us and blessed the book. And I mean, what a, what a gift. But that was John Paul until the end. Yeah. Always the individual person. They said, I'm not sure that's fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> name dropper. Yeah. <laughs> that's more than name yeah. dropping. That's yeah. grace dropping. Yeah, My it was. goodness it was from so heaven above. Spoiled. Yeah, Scott, you, you've had some interaction with John Paul II over the time, too. I don't know if there's a story or, you know... The, the well, encounters. I had several conversations, but not 24. <laughs> <laughs> I know that much. A, a couple of them had to do with theology, and uh, I remember thinking how distracted he must be, and so I mentioned one particular theologian who was my favorite, Matthias Shaban, mm -hmm. and he just leaned forward. And he looked at Shevich and he was like, oh, there's reading Shaban in America. <laughs> yeah. oh, you know? and, we, and we connected. It was yeah. just like a, a minute and a half later, you know, yeah. we, all, we all realized I got to move on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the next yeah. guy's waiting. Yeah. But it was just that capacity to relate to me as a person and then also to relate as a scholar to things that really mattered a lot, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, John Paul II had such an impact on this university. I mm -hmm. mean, Father Mike Scanlon, when he was president, having so many encounters with them, but so many people who went over and visited with him. Um, and, and as we go into the, the, the loves of John Paul, uh, just to see his love for youth particularly. Maybe we'll catch that up on the other side yeah. in the next segment. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Mm -hmm. 
Well, having the name John Paul, um, obviously I'm named after the Pope, St. John Paul the Great. And um, my mom always taught me when I was younger just about him and especially about his love for athletics. And that really showed me and taught me that I can use my body and I can glorify the Lord through athletics and I can use my body and my abilities to give all the glory to God. Having been named John Paul, uh, you know, I, I've read quite a bit about uh, St. John Paul II and uh, one of the striking things uh, that really, you know, touches me is that he was a man of uh, not just words but of action. You know, he, when he went up in front of the world and said, be not afraid, and took that as his banner during his papacy, you know, he wasn't afraid to speak out against things like the culture of death um, or about, you know, the communist uh, occupation of his own home country. So, you know, I think more world leaders need to take up the banner of be not afraid. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about St. John Paul the Great, his, uh, his loves, five loves, uh, with author and speaker Jason Everett, uh, with this great book that you can get at EWTN uh, bookstore here. Um, Jason, we, we talked in the last episode a little bit about uh, how John Paul II has a commitment uh, yeah. to, to the youth, the two, yeah. the two commitments he had. But where does that come from? Where does his love for youth, where did that spring? Is that, is that early in his uh, yeah. days well, there? It came from God. I mean, it's a, it's a gift from God to love teenagers the way that he did. Okay. And you know, maybe part of it was his devotion also to Our Lady, because he recognized, mm -hmm. okay, the world was saved by a teenager saying yes to God when you really get down to it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so, but he spent so much time with them, he was so comfortable with them. I mean, imagine a pope who's, he's like a, a lifelong youth minister. He's just as comfortable <laughs> as some life teen minister sitting on a linoleum floor having pizza with high school kids. That's how comfortable he was. And so he sought them out. You know, like when he came to uh, France and Paris in 1980, before the World, World, World Youth Days, one of my favorite stories of him is he shows up, there's a stadium with 50,000 teenagers, there's 35,000 outside that couldn't even fit to get in, and he kind of had an unplugged Q&A where the kids could ask questions, they had their own microphone, and one kid got up and kind of piped up some atheist objections. Now, why do you believe what you believe? And it was all unscripted, and, and he kind of just ducked back into the crowd. And the, the proceedings went on, and the Pope didn't have a chance to answer him. And the Holy Father went back to Rome and he just kept thinking about that boy. You know, he mm. didn't have a chance to answer him. And so he, he had his people contact the Cardinal who was in charge of the whole event, Cardinal Francois Marty, and asked him, find the boy for me. And I'm sure Cardinal Marty was like, <laughs> no, there's 80,000 teenagers. And he insisted, find him. So they went out in a quest, like, youth minister, do you know? Oh yeah, that's, he's with that church. And they found the boy, and John Paul sent him a personal apology that his question wasn't answered, and a personal invitation to fly him to Rome so the two of them could have lunch together. And he answered his questions personally in wow. the Vatican. But this is the heart of the shepherd that he had. He wasn't putting on a show. This is the love he had. You know, we think of World Youth Day as a sort of permanent fixture in the church, mm -hmm. but it really is an extension of his love. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you think about what Pope Francis has done in Buenos Aires, and then also Pope Emeritus Benedict in Cologne and Australia, 
you know, you go back and the glory days really were, mm. like the Philippines, where mm. the largest crowd in human history yeah. gathered, what was it, six or seven yeah. million? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and likewise in Denver, where everybody said, oh, you can expect no more than 20,000, yeah. you know, yeah. and well over a half a million showed up yeah. at Mile High. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sort of thing just radiates still the yeah. fact that, you know, he is not dead, he is quite alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. In some yeah. ways yeah. more than we are. Yeah. 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 yeah, the World Youth Days had a profound impact on so many, so many people throughout yeah. the world. I just remember being, you know, mm -hmm. at a World World Youth Day in the Philippines where yeah. it was just, it was a sea of people. People would stay up all night yeah. and then he was still, he was frail at that point mm -hmm. in his life. Yeah. But they, they, they started singing, shine, Jesus shine. And he yeah. gets out there and he starts swinging his cane <laughs> and he's, he's yeah. going along. And it was yeah. just beautiful to see his love. But it really yeah. started very early in his days, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with those moments where you, you even talk about how um, they call them Uncle Wojtyla, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, as he's out there with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's just such a, a beautiful bond but a, a great love. But the, yeah. I think I remember the, the thing that remembers uh, I remember the most at World Youth Day was how they would say, John Paul II, we love you. Yeah. It was just this this infectious love yeah. uh, the youth had for him, but that he reciprocated. Yeah, and he would chant back, John Paul II, he loves you. <laughs> and the college students at Catholic University <laughs> chanted to him, you know, John Paul II, we love you. And he said, perhaps he loves you more. Wow. And we knew it. I mean, he was right. He yes. did. Yes. And he, he was happy and he was demanding. And he said, like, the young people, they're not afraid. They have tough questions, but they're not afraid of answers, even if they're demanding. He said, more to the point, they even await those demanding mm. answers. Mm. And so we knew he was loving, he was uncompromising, and he was authentic. And because of the weight of his interior life, that kind of gravitas that he had, we knew he's real. And young people can tell if you're authentic. They do. They have, they have a radar mm -hmm. for authenticity. They can they spot is. a fake from a mile away, and yeah. they just knew that he loved them. And uh, yeah, he, he, not only did he love them, he would challenge them. He would say to them, happiness comes through sacrifice, which is one of the most unbelievably countercultural things to say. Yeah. But they believed him and they found him credible because they could tell that he was a man of authenticity and integrity. Counterculture, yeah. I think, is a key word here because I met him in 92 for the first time, one month after my mm -hmm. father died. And I remember saying to him, my father died one month ago and he just, you know, took hold of me. And then I said, now I get to meet my spiritual father. Yeah. You know, what a joy. And you look back at when he was elected in 1978, and at that point, there really was a cultural void, is precisely when it comes to fatherhood. Mm -hmm. You know, all in the family, you know, which was really a laughing stock at Archie Bunker, the mm -hmm. pseudo father figure, you know. And, and there had been nothing, and there was to be nothing, and yet yeah. suddenly he steps into this void yeah. and fills it to overflowing with the joy and the love of fatherhood, yeah. but it's demanding. It's sacrificial, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. in a certain sense, nobody could get away with that except that you realize when you looked at him, yeah. he was demanding more of himself than everybody else put mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was his first love, you know, yeah. with the youth. But then, then what would you say his second love in the book is? Well, I mean, the, the trouble with the book is it could have been a thousand pages yeah. long. Yeah, you know. could have said, you know, there's 10,000 loves. But the second one that I point out was human love, you know, mm. that he would go camping with these engaged couples and dating couples and listen to them and give them counsel. That's what love and responsibility was, right. was the outpouring of all of these discussions and how much he had heard. And he was initially handing it out as spiritual exercises for engaged couples. And even uh -huh. today, it's really a marriage examination of conscience right. just to read that thing. But, you know, he said, even from being a young priest, I had a great love for humanity human love. And people say, well, you know, I mean, he's a celibate man. I mean, what could he right. really know yeah. about relationships? But I mean, you know, as married men, I mean, we only know one woman. 
And my wife would even argue, I don't even know her that well. <laughs> you know, she said to me the other day, she's like, you're not a good listener. And I, and I said, I'm a motivational speaker, not a motivational listener. <laughs> Advance the conversation very well. Uh, but, you know, a, a priest is not restricted to know one woman. I mean, he knows thousands. I mean, marriage preparation, what he's hearing in the confessionals that wives may not even tell their husbands. Yeah. And so he had this beautiful insight on human love and what a gift it was that he had that love with his intellect and his heart, and he has given us so many blessings through yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and from that, to some degree, comes the, I mean, obviously probably Wednesday audiences, but the theology of the body mm -hmm. and everything that comes through that. I mean, he had a deep insight, yeah. uh, both as a philosopher, as a pastor, and mm -hmm. as, as a lover of humans, yeah. you know, that he looked at couples and said, they need this. And mm -hmm. why was uh, marriage, why was family so important to him, and why is it so important to the church? Well, I think it was important to him because it's important. It just <laughs> is. I mean, as the family goes, so goes the entire civilization. But he, he really knew how to put his finger on the heart of all the issues. He was speaking to the bishops, I mentioned this in the book, uh, in America, and challenging them to make the gospel attractive, even though it's very demanding, especially when it comes to divorce, remarriage, adultery, pornography. And a bishop from Indiana who since deceased asked him, now, Holy Father, one word you said struck me, attractive. Like, how do we make these things attractive to the modern world and contraception and all this stuff? And he said, John Paul became very serious like a philosopher, and he said, it is necessary to understand the soul of the woman. All these things that have promised a liberator, premarital sex, contraception, have they not enslaved her? But that one sentence, it is necessary to understand the soul of the woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this what every woman wants? Isn't this what every guy at least tries to do, mm -hmm. you know, in earnest? But to me, it's almost, you can unpack so much sexual ethics in that one sentence. If we just understand the soul of the woman, then how much of Catholic sexual action ethics suddenly makes sense? Yeah, because yeah, when I think about why the church, you know, some, some John Paul II would get this, but the church as a whole would say, what, what, what are these bunch of celibate men, yeah. as you said earlier, yeah. have to do or care about our, mm -hmm. our sexual life or what mm -hmm. have you? But it's at the essence of who we are. It's, it's, it's the primordial relationship between father and son mm -hmm. that gives us Jesus Christ. He revealed himself as father in the family. That yeah. love matters, and that's the greatest in scripture analogy of the father's love for us. Mm -hmm. As a, as a uh, husband lays down his life uh, for his wife, uh, the Christ has laid down his life for us. Yeah. You know, what he did before he became Pope, you already mentioned love and responsibility, mm -hmm. but he had this other classic, the acting person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we didn't realize, though, is that before he was elected in 78, he already had compiled almost the entirety of what later becomes known as the theology of the yeah. body. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was written in Polish when he uh -huh. came to Rome and he began yeah. to teach it. I wasn't in the church yet. In fact, I wasn't entering the church until yeah. after he was done with that catechesis mm -hmm. that went on for almost five years. But I do remember vividly going through it week after week, photocopying, mm -hmm. like on the sly. I don't want people to know I'm photocopying the Pope <laughs> you know, on a weekly basis. Yeah. But what he did was to make the Word of God come alive. Yeah. A friend of mine, Dr. Mikhail Volstein, points out, you know, the, the, the question is, is the theology of the body Thomistic following Aquinas or phenomenological? And he said, it's neither, it's biblical. Mm -hmm. And from beginning to end, yeah. it is. I mean, from mm -hmm. Genesis through Matthew to the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy was a man of the word. Yeah. He was soaked in scripture, you know, no less than, you know, Pope Emeritus Benedict. And yeah. I, I, I'm thrilled to discover that there are so many non-Catholics who recognize now this indeed is not just his theological, theological legacy for the church. Yeah. It's for all Christians, mm -hmm. Catholic or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. That is so powerful. When we go to your next love, yeah. and I think we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, is the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. 
How did, how did he demonstrate or, or talk to us a little bit about his love for the Eucharist? Well, I remember Cardinal Regali shared with me that once the Holy Father was before uh, some church celebration, I don't know if it was a mass or what context it was in, but John Paul was kneeling before the tabernacle and the crowd was kind of waiting for things to get rolling and the master of ceremonies kind of wanted to get the show on the road. So he just announces on the microphone before everyone, and now the Pope will rise. Uh, John Paul doesn't even probably hear him. I mean, he's gone. And so the MC waits a few more minutes, and Cardinal Regali said, look, I don't know what got into the guy, but it just went from bad to worse. And he announced again, and now the Pope will rise. John Paul doesn't budge. I mean, he's lost in prayer. And then the MC kind of just, you know, sat down and realized, okay, when the Holy Father is done talking to the Almighty, you know, he'll wrap things up. And he could sense our Lord's presence. Uh, Father Michael White was a priest in the Diocese of Baltimore, and he said when the Holy Father came, the Vatican would always send out representatives that would get everything in line. And a priest that headed it up was a, a Jesuit priest, Father Roberto Tucci. And he said when Father Tucci came, he was examining the bishop's, you know, quarters, and he said the Holy Father is going to be walking down this hall, and it's lined with doors on either side one that opened up to the chapel with the Blessed Sacrament. I said to Father Michael White, now when the Pope comes, make sure the door is closed. We can't let him know there's a chapel here. And Father Michael, you know, why do you have to hide the Eucharist from the Pope? And he said, well, you see, he said, if the Holy Father ever finds a chapel, he wants to go in. So we <laughs> reroute his Pope mobile away from Catholic churches because he'll get out, get lost in prayer, and it ruins the whole schedule. <laughs> and so he said, just make sure the door is closed. So a few weeks later, the Holy Father shows up. He's walking down the hallway, and he passes the door, and then he stops. And he turns around, he looks at the door, then he looks over to Father Tucci and shook his head and wagged his finger at him, and then opened the door and went right in. And <laughs> Father Michael White said there's no way he could have known. He's never been here before, but he sensed our Lord's presence. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. You know, before I met him, I went to the chapel for the private mass mm -hmm. back in January of 92. And we got there early, and you could see him, you know, just caught up in prayer mm -hmm. before the Blessed Sacrament, prepar preparation for the Mass, with his head in his hands. And he was still relatively young and healthy mm -hmm. at that point, at least healthy and strong. Yes. And you could hear him also sigh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and groaning. The, the yeah. groaning. And then afterwards, when everybody left, he was still praying mm -hmm. on the pray do, kneeling, and uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I do know why. I didn't leave. Everybody <laughs> else left. I stayed in the back. Yeah. And for about four minutes, I, I felt a little naughty, I felt greedy, but I also felt like I needed to unite my heart to his oh, yeah. in prayer. Mm -hmm. and, and he just wasn't in any hurry to get up. Yeah. And then the Swiss guard figured out that they were, they were missing one. Yeah, they yeah. came back and got me. Yeah. And, a, and a minute or two later, he came down and yeah. met us. But I just thought, he is so caught up in the presence yeah. of Jesus. This is more than the doctrine of the real presence. Mm -hmm. This is the presence of a love. Yeah, you know? yeah. and yeah. I think it was, it was Cardinal Rossinger before it became mm -hmm. Benedict XVI said, if you really want to get to know John Paul, the best way is not by analyzing his books or his speeches, but by concelebrating mass with him and letting yourself be drawn into the intense silence of his prayer. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get to know the man, that's how it's done. Yeah, I remember Father Mike uh, Scanlon talking about that similar kind of experience at mm -hmm. Mass with the Holy Father, just with those sighs too deep, the prayer, the Holy Spirit just Romans praying age. with him, groaning from within. Yeah, uh, I spoke to a priest just a week ago, and, and he said, yeah, when I had my first Mass with the Holy Father, we got there, and, and I was all excited to meet him, and he's there praying, and I'm sitting behind him like, okay, we're going to get to meet him. Okay, he's praying. I guess I should pray too. Oh yeah, we're supposed to pray here. <laughs> like it, just, it just draws you right in. One of the enduring images that I have of Pope John Paul II, Saint Pope John Paul II, is uh, at those World Youth Days in front of thousands and thousands mm -hmm. and thousands yeah. of people, hidden, if you will, in his cope and his humor veil, and, and, and demonstrating you know, in, in the monstrance, our blessed Lord raising up Jesus. Yeah. 
before these thousands of people and you could there sense physically what was happening spiritually, which is the Eucharist builds the church, which is something he would say in his encyclical mm -hmm. on the relationship of the Eucharist and the church. We, of, we often think of the relationship the other way around, right? That the Father sends the Son upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the church confects the Eucharist, which is true, well, and good. Mm -hmm. But really what our Holy Father was showing too is the Eucharist builds the church, and that's what he was doing so often in those world mm -hmm. youth days, demonstrating to them yeah the reality of our Lord in the Eucharist. I remember once he was driving the Pope Mobile with the Blessed Sacrament in front of him on a monstrance, and he wanted to kneel, but he was so weak, his handlers wouldn't let him because the road was bumpy. And, and he took them and he said, please, please, he said, it's Jesus. And he begged them to let him kneel before the mm -hmm. Blessed Sacrament. It just shows his heart. You know, I, I know, remember a professor here telling me when celebrating Mass with him, he said, I remember when he genuflected, he couldn't even support his own weight, and you could just hear his knee thudding into the marble floor oh. because he had to genuflect. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, stay with us for the third segment of Franciscan University Presents. Jason Everett's book discussing John Paul the Great's life sheds light on his simple mission, love. Love for the church, for the Blessed Virgin Mary, for the Eucharist, and for youth. From his youth at age 55, elected to the papacy, helping to defeat communism in his native Poland, and then towards the end of his life when he suffered through Parkinson's disease. It shows his resilience to never give up to keep fighting for Christ and for the church, and to show the world that no matter what age you are, you have to live your life sanctified. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools, you're not gonna have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that. Because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University. Uh, we're filming this show right now um, at the Communication Arts Studio here at Franciscan University. Um, our students are running the camera and the equipment here at the university. Our, our panelists, uh, our uh, faculty here at Franciscan University, and even our special guest yeah. today as uh, an alum of Franciscan. Um, something that you know we we sometimes take too quickly for granted when we think about John Paul II, but you, you really highlight, and I want to spend some time yeah. talking about um, his love for the Blessed Mother. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was very pivotal to him. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw it in his coat of arms. I mean, there's so many things that we see, yeah. uh, and there's so many experiences John Paul II had with Our Lady. So yeah. uh, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, he lost his mom when he was eight years old, mm. and uh, his father the next day took them to an outdoor shrine there in Poland, Calvaria, and, you know, essentially telling them, you know, this is going to be your mother now until you get back to heaven. And he always had a strong devotion to her in high school. A priest said he noticed him kneeling for hours before a statue of Our Lady. And mm. his relationship with her, I mean, he was a true mystic in the deepest sense. I think that's going to come forth in centuries in the church, the depth of his mystical life. But a priest who taught me here as a visiting professor, Father George Tracy, said he was celebrating Mass with the Holy Father. After communion, he said the Holy Father's hands were on his face, and he was just rocking and sighing and crying and saying, no, no Maria, no Madonna, no Maria. 
and nobody could see this except for Father George, and he's sitting right here listening to this dialogue. And then after Mass, uh, I don't know if it was a bishop or some prelate, came to Father George and said, oh, did you enjoy your Mass with the Holy Father? And he said, I, I did, but he said after communion, he was very shaken up, and it said it seemed like he was speaking to the Virgin Mary. And the prelate said, well, we know, he does it all the time, and she's the <laughs> only one he listens to around here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it gives you, it's, it's the church is in pretty good hands. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Well, and, and his, his motto. What yeah. was his motto and what is that? Well, totus tuus, the Latin, entirely yours, coming yeah. from the writing of St. Louis de Montfort. And a very simple way to understand that the, just the, the practice and the devotion of total consecration is that, you know, if you pray Hail Mary, it's like giving Our Lady, giving your mom a rose. You know, if you give her a rosary, it's like giving her a whole bouquet. Total consecration is giving her yourself. Mm. That uh, the value of all your good works and your actions. So I entrust the book to her. I entrust my ministry, my family, my children, myself. Like the Holy Father, everywhere he traveled, everything he could get his mitts on, he consecrated to her. <laughs> yeah, every country, yeah, every yeah. group, every yeah. apostolate, because it was through her that these things could truly become fruitful. Not just productive, but fruitful. You know, and he did this at a time where Marian spirituality and devotion were waning. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back to the 70s. Yes. And I mean, a lot of statues have been put in closets or in the basement or if they hadn't just been thrown away. Yeah. And you know, I, I went to uh, Guadalupe on mm -hmm. pilgrimage and uh, the Mexicans, you know, yeah. I, you'd have thought that John Paul was a Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> the love that they have for him was like a passion oh, raging out of control years after he had gone home yeah. to heaven. Yeah. But I mean, he came to Mexico, I think the first time he, mm -hmm. he traveled. His first international trip. Yeah, his first international trip. Yeah. And, and he went out of his way to meet the president who obviously didn't really want to yeah, meet him. Yeah, I mean, a couple like, sentences and out of here, you know. Yeah. But the way that he connected with the people, I went out of my way to get home and see the documentary of, mm -hmm. of, of, what, uh, of how he connected with those people. Yeah. And it wasn't just at the beginning, it was near the end when he went back for the canonization of Juan mm -hmm. Diego, I believe. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, they just were like, they hadn't forgotten a thing. They, you yeah. know, it was just an amazing thing to see how people, millions of people, yeah in another country across the ocean, yeah. saw their dad, mm -hmm. you know, their spiritual father. Yeah, yeah. And, and he loved them. I mean, going back, he wanted to go back to Mexico City and his handler said, look, you know, just make a spiritual pilgrimage, you know, with your health. And he said, no, I'm going. Like, you can come with me or not, but I'm going. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he, and the Virgin of Guadalupe, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he had a devotion to her before, yeah. but afterwards, it just really, yeah. really but grabbed and, and his did, heart. Didn't she, uh, or didn't he declare her the patroness of the new evangelization? Didn't mm -hmm. he? The Empress of the America. Yeah. Yeah. And when it was before her for the first time there in 79, Cardinal Regali told me it was that, that moment that he understood his call to be a missionary pope. Yeah. It was yeah. before the image of the tilma that he understood that with this international trip, now I understand the gravity of what I'm going to do globally. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it all started there. What's the statistic about how the church was losing uh, Catholics during the well, yeah, Reformation? Back in the 1530s, at the yeah. time of the Protestant Reformation, approximately 9 million people left the church yeah. for Protestantism. And in that same period of time, nine million very poor, illiterate Mexicans came to Jesus through Mary. Mm -hmm. You know, and that wasn't just back then. I mean, this has been a constant torrent ever since. When we went there, you know, you could just see tens of thousands, and then on Sunday, hundreds of thousands of people renewing this covenant of love with Jesus through Mary. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it just spills into all the world. Yeah. John Paul II's devotion to our Blessed Mother spilled over into my local Catholic school. I think I was fifth or sixth grade. And as a result, it caught fire in my home, in my family. My mother wow. decided from here on out, 
we will pray the rosary after dinner, which I did not like at the time. I didn't find that in any way helpful, but really I think it was a turning point of renewal and a deepening in my own family life. And many, many years later, my father would pass away on the feast of Our uh, Lady of Guadalupe on December 12th. Wow. And I took that as a very heartening, very, very wonderful sign of the real kind of providence our Lord has through our Blessed Mother. Mm. And all the storing up of those prayers that we prayed together, you know, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And then I understood and really felt a debt of gratitude to Pope John Paul II for really helping to set the world aflame. What happened in your school happened in my home because I'd been trying for years to get Kimberly to sign off on having the kids do all five decades. We'd do an after-dinner decade. But it was when John Paul announced the year of the rosary, mm -hmm. and we began to pray the family rosary. And you could see over time each of our kids finding a love for the Blessed Virgin as a mm. spiritual mother. You know, and I owe so much, as everybody does, mm. you know, to John Paul for kind of renewing that love. Yeah. It's not just doctrine, it's not just devotion, it really is a, a communion bond. Yeah, and a family that prays together stays together, yeah. right? Well, is that Father Peyton? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, but, but our Holy Father also had a brush with death uh, yeah. that Our Lady uh, played a pivotal role in, in that, that moment. Yeah, that w would be an understatement. I would say, <laughs> I would say a brush with death because everyone looks at the 1981 assassination attempt and say, well, that was the attempt. Well, you know, a few months earlier, he was walking into a mass in the Middle East and a terrorist bomber was getting into the mass and the bomb accidentally detonated while he was trying to get into the church and it killed only the suicide bomber. That was earlier in 81, and, and the shooting happened in 81. Then in 1982, he went to Fatima to give thanks to Our Lady for saving his life for the shooting, and a priest stabbed him with a bayonet during a candlelight procession. And he went on. He just turned around and he blessed the man, and no one knew that he had been stabbed. And then after the, the ceremony, he took off his vestments in the rectory, and they saw the blood coming down his cassock. But he didn't want anyone to know, because he knew that that would make the security detail keep him further from the crowds, and he wanted to be with the people. But, I mean, throughout his paper, there's so many attempts on his life. When he was landing in, I think it was Sarajevo, they radioed up to the plane, it's not safe. I mean, we just found under the bridge you're going to pass 20 anti-tank mines with 50 pounds of plastic explosives. And he basically said, well, let's take another bridge. And they said, well, you don't understand, like, it's not safe. And he said, are people waiting for me? And they said, well, yes. And he said, then we're going. So they sent an F-16 fighter jet to fly alongside Shepard 1 it was, as it was landing. And a lot, I think, my, I think the one that most people don't know about is that in the 1995 World Youth Day in Manila, the September 11th guys tried to kill him, the Al-Qaeda guys. Really? The two bombers who had bombed the World Trade Center in 91 lived in an apartment a block away from the Papal Nuncio. And they were planning the whole assassination attempt. One of their uncles would, was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11. And they had everything planned out, and, but their apartment caught on fire a week before the Pope was going to land because they were mixing chemicals to make a bomb. It caught on fire. They ran away. The police came and found the apartment as a live-in bomb factory with a map of the papal motorcade where he was going to go in a week, priestly cassocks that were set to go that they were going to dress up, get in. And because this fire was started, the whole plot was ruined. John Paul shows up safely a week later and celebrated Mass with six to seven million people. So wow. he entrusted his whole papacy to Our Lady and he was always under her mantle. He wouldn't wear a bulletproof vest. He told the people in his entourage, you can't want to wear one either. If you want to wear one, you can't come with me. You really? either trust in God or not. Hollywood can't script this. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
Wow. I, I, I knew about some of that, but I didn't know all of those instances. Yeah. That's you should have read the book. I know. Well, I stopped. <laughs> this is too good. That's great. Yeah. Well, and Our Lady has always taken care of him. But this leads us to the cross. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, the fifth, fifth love here. You know, uh, yeah. w what does the cross mean to John Paul II? Well, where did that love come from? Well, I mean, he, he had known it since his earliest days. I mean, he had to wrestle with that cross. You know, but uh, you know, one thing I love is just his humor in the midst of his suffering. I mean, he had so much suffering I mean, between hip and ankle surgeries and loss is hearing mononucleosis, stab, shot, you name it. But he would just joke through it. Like a nun said, I'm worried about your holiness. And he said, I'm worried about my holiness too. Uh, <laughs> he got put in a wheelchair. He said, everyone else has a mobile phone. I have a mobile chair. And you know, a, a bishop came to see him from Mexico you know, shortly before he passed away. And he said, Holy Father, I'm afraid this is the last time we're going to see each other. And John Paul said, what? What are you, sick? You know, so, but, he, but he understood that the point of suffering isn't just to embrace it or accept it. It's for suffering to become victorious. Because in becoming man, Christ redeemed all things human, human love, human labor, human mm. suffering. And if we can join our sufferings to Christ, then we become powerful like Jesus Christ crucified is powerful. And so he would tell the sick that your role in the parish is not merely passive. Like you have a special role in the new evangelization to unleash the graces of redemption by the suffering of the body of Christ. And a lot of people even missed when he was alluding to this. When he was in Lourdes, right before he passed away, he made a visit there. And he told the sick people, I join myself to your prayers the, for those people who trust themselves to your prayers. He's not saying, I'm praying for you like other people because you're sick. He's saying, I'm joining in your prayers for others because the prayer of the sick and suffering so is so powerful. You know, I remember growing up as a new Christian outside the Catholic Church as an evangelical and, you know, struggling with the faith and, you know, the health and wealth gospel, that if you had enough faith, you know, God would remove your suffering. Yeah. In the process, you discover scripture, but even more, I discovered John Paul's teaching. Mm -hmm. yeah. Two or three years from becoming Catholic, he doesn't remove suffering, he transforms yeah. suffering into it. a holy yeah. sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, that makes so much more sense, yeah. you know, because it's one thing to overcome suffering. It's another thing to overcome our fear of suffering. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. I mean, he showed the world this fearless, joyful attitude. Yeah. You know, once we know what Christ can do to our suffering, we can embrace the cross, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. not just resign ourselves to accept yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, I think it scandalized a lot of people seeing him drool and shaking and couldn't hold his papers. Like, well, shouldn't the Vatican not show that? And, but he wanted us to see it for our own sakes, yes. to know that there's dignity in human suffering. Yeah. He showed us how to live and he showed us how to die. Mm -hmm. uh, and the suffering between. Suffering. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and in him embracing that cross, embracing the cross yeah. in his life, uh, you know, there, there are those moments, those miracle moments uh, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, he experienced. Could you share a couple of those yeah. kind of unique? Yeah. You know, as much as he understood the value of human suffering, he also understood that God sometimes wants to protect us from that and mm -hmm. save us. And like, you know, one woman came up to him and she and her husband couldn't have kids, miscarriage after miscarriage. And, you know, we can't have children. And, and, and he just traced the sign of the cross on her forehead and said, you'll have a boy. And then they went home from the audience, took a pregnancy test, and didn't realize they were actually pregnant with a boy at the time, who they not surprisingly named John Paul. Um, <laughs> but this stuff would happen so often. I think one of my favorites is that one of his Swiss guards was standing at attention at the bronze doors, and a mom came to him with a little daughter who was deaf and said, oh, my, my daughter drew a picture for the Pope. Could you give it to him? So they passed it on to the Holy Father. He went out to his Wednesday audience. After the audience, he walked into the crowd, and he, he said, you, and he pointed at the little girl, had her come forward, he says, you must be Carolina puts his hands on her head, prays over her, and leaves. And the next day they said her mother called the Vatican hysterical, saying all I know is she was born deaf and now she can hear. Wow. And this would happen so often, John Paul actually told Jeevish, don't record this stuff. God 
does miracles, and we just pray. Wow. You know, the fact that you had a foreword written by mm -hmm. a former Swiss guard for this book, oh, you know, yeah. and then you also tell stories about how, you know, he could single out Swiss guard, you know, yeah. the one guy who it was his first Christmas <laughs> yeah. away from yeah. the family. That's right. That's right. Know, <laughs> like, oh, that was so moving. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you'd think that these guys are just posted to watch out for him. Mm -hmm. He's watching out for them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like Bill Gates going to a guy in the mail room and saying, oh, I noticed you're sniffling. You have a bad day. I mean, yeah. but he wouldn't see himself as the CEO. He saw himself as the servant of the servants of God. Right. Yeah. The missionary I, I, in chief. So, so if we look at these five, maybe we'll have to do a little bit more in the, in the last segment, but you know, what, what, what fruit has been born by John Paul II's love, uh, these five loves? We've only seen the tip of the iceberg because the fruit is going to be seen in the families. The fruit mm -hmm. of junior high kids now learning the theology of the body, discerning their own vocation, entering into the priesthood, the religious life, or the married life, and living out that total gift of themselves, the blessings that their kids are going to receive from their vocations. This is a generational thing. I mean, it's going to take eras before we realize the full impact that he's going to have on church history. Uh, it's amazing. John, uh, what did George Weigel call it the theological time bomb mm -hmm. with uh, theology of the body and so yeah. much of, of what he has shared both in word and witness. Yeah. Uh, but as you indicate, it's the tip of the iceberg. What he wrote I mean, he was so prolific, mm -hmm. you know, and year after year after year, uh, it has not yet been assimilated or absorbed by the church. Mm -hmm. It's going to take scholars, but it's going to take the faithful a lot of time. Yeah. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Being named John Paul has been instrumental in my, in my relationship with Mary, uh, just trying to incarnate her into my everyday life. I do my best when I start off classes to write uh, totus tuus, which was John Paul's motto and a simplified version of his coat of arms on my papers along with saying the Angelus and, uh, and praying the rosary throughout the day. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about St. John Paul II, his five loves. Um, Scott, could you start us off with our yeah. summation? I was delighted to, re to read this book. I knew, I knew before I read it, it was going to be insightful, it was going to be tastefully humorous, it was going to be an easy, accessible read. I mean, it was all those things, but moreover, it was inspirational. Mm -hmm. I found myself, especially reading the prayer life of yeah. John Paul II, wanting to deepen my prayer life, wanting to become more holy. And I also noticed that there seems to be in these five loves really a commonality or a common theme, which is to say perhaps uh, they're all five acts of the same play. And the moral of the story, I think, is self-donating love. Mm. Yeah, self-donating love, beginning with the Eucharist, right? I'm again thinking of Ecclesia de Eucharistia, where our Holy Father said, you know, strip, uh, uh, the, the Eucharist has been stripped of its sacrificial meaning and reduced to a fraternal banquet. But he, and he goes on to, to say and quote the Constitution of the Church, uh, Lumen Gentium from Vatican II, that as often as our Lord is sacrificed on the altar, the church grows. But it's because of the sacrifice of our Lord. Mm -hmm. And this is the great news that he has for the youth. Again, you know, happiness comes through sacrifice. And that's the word that he has for families, that family life can only be preserved by a great 
spirit of sacrifice. And this is what he says about our blessed mother, that in front of the cross, there she stood in an unimaginable human suffering, but somehow supernaturally and mysteriously that suffering is fruitful for the church and she stands then as an icon for all of our suffering mm -hmm. and so in reading this it just it helped me to realize and to remember that and as you said in the book and i forgot who you quoted but show me who you love and i'll show you who you are and our holy father loved participating in christ's self-donating love he loved having christ's love reproduced in him. And all of these loves are various kind of different angles of this self-sacrificing, self-emptying love of our Lord. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the book, Jason. Uh, thanks, Scott. Scott? Yeah, uh, thank you for the book. Uh, it's funny because you mentioned St. Pete's, the Eucharistic Chapel. That's where I was last night reading it. I have a confession. You <laughs> can't absolve me. Well, Mike knows this. I don't always read the books of the guests. I took it down. I'll, I'll look through it, you know. and. You know, shame on you. I, I, I had trouble praying. You know? <laughs> I, I read this whole, I, I read through it, and then I stayed a little longer. And, you know, it just struck me at the time, well, you know, five loves, there must be 10 or 20. But, you know, young people, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Human love, exactly yeah. right. The Eucharist, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the cross. And I, and I was just drawn into prayer as I was reading through it. And, you know, what more could you ask for from a book than that, yeah. you know? to be before the Blessed Sacrament, to, to really welcome the, the, the graces that have been flowing into the church ever since this man went home to heaven. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing the book. I want to encourage people to get hold of this thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It really does impact. I mean, a lot of us have read George Weigel's book, Witness to Hope. I mean, that is a monumental classic. Mm -hmm. But it's also deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. slow going. This is quick. Yeah. And it leads you step by step into prayer. It led me back home. It led me, you know, yeah. to, to, to want to spend time with my wife and kids this morning. We went to morning mass and it was just celebration mm -hmm. of life and a celebration of, of, of St. John Paul the Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you for writing it. Well, Come back and speak on this a lot. <laughs> I'm more than happy yeah. to. Yeah, yeah it's happy great. Too. Jason. I think one of the things the Holy Father really left with me as someone who does a lot of ministry work is that, you know, it's not really what you do. It's, it's who you are. It's mm. not about doing, because I think especially as men, it's all about productivity and doing and That's creating right. and this. And John Paul really showed us, no, it, it's who you are. It's being in the presence of God. He's the yeah. one who does the work. He's the vine, you're the branches, just sit still. It's not about being productive, it's about being fruitful. And so mm. his interior life, the weight of that interior life is what made his apostolate so fruitful. And so when I'm tempted to go out, you know, God, I want to speak to a million people. And God's like, well, do you want to fast for a million people? I'm like, well, <laughs> it makes me hungry. You know, can we just have a visual speaker thing? You know, but he draws you back down to, to the roots. And so, you know, in writing this book, I just wanted people to love him as I love him and, and really get to know the heart of this man. And so what we did is in publishing it, we decided to self-publish it so that we could control the price of the thing. And so if someone wants to get the book in a single copy, they can go to the EWTN religious catalog, but if you want to get a box of them, we sell them for only $2 a piece. Wow. So that way you can get a box of, you know, 36 books or so for $72 and then just evangelize them. Give them to your RCIA class, give them to the youth group, give them to the high school, because I think the greatest evangelization is not so much what we do, but who we are. And I think he was, he personifies that. Oh, that is great. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you again, both for writing the book, uh, for making us proud uh, as you are out there doing such great work, spreading the gospel, sharing uh, his love. Um, and uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, uh, we have a handout for you. It's a chapter uh, um, from Jason's book. You can get it at faithandreason.com. You can download it there or just for calling us. Uh, Jason mentioned the book, uh, which you can, uh, you can get in a couple different ways now, it sounds like. Um, 
When we think about John Paul II, I, I really just have that, that keen image of him at World Youth Day and his love for youth. That's what, that, that still burned image in my mind. Um, but he, as, as was shared here, had a particular love. He had a, a love for each individual. And that's something that I think no one can escape. If they've, if they've met him uh, in a personal way, they, they know that. Uh, but that's the way Jesus comes to us. He was acting in persona Christi in that sense, that he was loving us like Christ loves us. And so when I think about all the ways that we can serve Christ in the church, uh, we first need that. We need to spend that time before the Eucharist, receiving the Eucharist, and knowing that we are loved. That gives us the opportunity and the ability, kind of the capacity to embrace our cross. Uh, but we need to know that Christ calls us by name, uh, that he has loved us individually. And John Paul II, um, as, as uh, others have said, he wasn't a pope from Poland. He, he was the pope from Galilee. And uh, we need to remember that this saint is now on our side. Uh, probably his power, his power is now exponentially increased uh, with his prayers and intercession for us in this church. So if you want to make a, a new uh, decision in your life to go deeper with Christ, ask for his intercession. Ask for his patronage. Uh, follow his witness and follow his words. Go deep into the things that he loved. Uh, the love for youth. Uh, the love for human love. Uh, the love for the Eucharist, Our Lady uh, and the Cross. Uh, these are powerful things. So read the book, go deep in this, um, and really change our world in a, in a very profound way um, through your life, through your witness. Um, I, I do think about, um, there. I get a, a, a little envious when I hear Scott or Jason talking about their experiences with John Paul II. And so many people are at Franciscan University, had so many powerful experiences. Uh, but, but ultimately, it's about our encounter with Christ. And we really need to, to emphasize that. Uh, we recently, uh, in the last year, were able to dedicate a beautiful statue on our campus. And the words that we emblazoned on it as a memorial, one of our alumni classes uh, donated the money for this beautiful statue, uh, be not afraid. And I think those are the words that he uh, said not only at the beginning of his pontificate, but I, I think he said it throughout his life. And he said it in his words as he, he showed us how to live, how to suffer, how to embrace the cross, how to love Christ, and, and how to die. Be not afraid. If you, whatever you're going through, uh, Christ is there with you. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission. Um, our mission is to, to send forth disciples, joyful disciples, to evangelize, to witness, uh, to form those who are going to go out and transform the world. Uh, I want to invite you to be a part of that mission by taking classes here on campus through online or distance learning, um, or go uh, and come, come to visit us at one of our conferences here or one of our conferences throughout the country. We have youth conferences, so if you have young people or, or you're a young person yourself, we have high school youth conferences that serve uh, between 40 and 50,000 uh, each summer. Uh, come and be part of that or one of our pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world, Guadalupe and so many other places. Um, also, we want you to go to faithandreason.com. It's uh, chock full of uh, Jason's talk and so many other lectures, speakers on this campus to equip you for the new evangelization. Uh, be a part of the mission of the new evangelization. We are joyful disciples sent forth uh, to spread his good news. So thank you for joining us, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. 
That's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.